Well, hello. My name is Skyler. Uh, this is uh, an awesome moment for me to be up here. It's probably been a half a year since I've been able to preach on a Sunday morning. And so before we get into our text, I just wanted to take a moment and thank, uh, just genuinely from the bottom of my heart, thank so many of the people who have prayed for Cassie and Ruth and our family over the last five months with the things that have been going on with our daughter. And there has been uh, many ways, many days as well, where Cassie and I really haven't had the strength to do much, and, and we haven't had the strength to pray or go to the Lord. And genuinely, one of the most encouraging things to us was to know that there was people praying for us, like the paralyzed man whose friends carried him to Jesus, lowered him through the ceiling. Many of you have been lowering us through the ceiling for the last four or five months, and so it's not, a, it's not a light thing. Like genuinely from the bottom of our hearts, we are grateful. Uh, we have uniquely seen the Lord in ways that we did not think possible through suffering. And it's because Jesus has met our family through the hands and feet of the body. So through the church is the way that God has reached us so many ways, intangible ways. And so thank you guys. Thank you genuinely. Um, as we get into our sermon, though, we've got a lot to go through in the Word. It has much for us this morning, so I'll start us off in prayer, and then we can get into it. Father God, thank you for your Word. And we could go to a multitude of places when we're going to look through the Old Testament and see how you've been preparing God's people for the Messiah and for Advent, the Advent of the King coming. Um, there's so many places we could go to believe that these things are true. We could go to archaeological evidence for the real events in the Old Testament. We could go to, prof- to prophecies fulfilled in the world, and that could assure us that this is true. We could go to manuscript evidence, all these things that you've graciously given us so we know that we don't just believe blindly. But as your people, God, we pray that we would go no further than 2 Timothy 3.16 this morning, that all scripture is is God-breathed. And because you've breathed your word to us, we as your people pray, God, that you would help us to have faith, that you would help us to believe you. We pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning as we look uh, at Advent and the coming of Jesus into the world. And we pray that you would continually remind us that this word is not just anywhere. It's your words for us to know you. So we pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would join me and open your Bibles to the table of contents, which is going to be before any of the chapters, if you've ever read a book before. And that wasn't meant to be insulting. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) Table of contents. Specifically, we're going to be hopping around to multiple different places in the Bible. And what what we're going to try to do this morning is establish an understanding, like some groundwork for Advent. We've got two weeks of our Advent series here. And genuinely, this is the question that I've been kind of plagued with the last two weeks. The question has been, like, so what? So what? Advent, yes, it happened. We know that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died, has, re- has resurrected, risen from the dead so that we can have life. So why does it matter to know about all this that built up to Jesus coming? Why on earth would it matter 
if we know about Advent, if we celebrate Advent, if we look in the Old Testament to see the anticipation of Jesus, why on earth does it matter? Because what we're going to be doing this morning is literally looking through multiple threads in the Old Testament and watching them pan out and point ultimately to culmination and fulfillment in Christ. So it's going to be awesome to see how the Word is tying together and leading to Jesus. But the question I keep asking and wondering is, so what? Why does it matter? And through thinking and praying through that question, probably more than anything else for the sermon, there's a few things that come, have come up, three specifically. I'm going to give you two now and carrot on the end of the stick to keep you engaged a little bit, I hope. We got one that I'll give you at the very end of the sermon. Um, the first two, the first one is biblical literacy. Why does this matter? Biblical literacy. In other words, God is working throughout through a redemptive historical focus. In other words, what that means is historical events, real history, is pointing that God is using all these events to bring about the redemption of humanity, to restore the original plan in the Garden of Eden, and that he will actually restore humanity, that redemptive historical focus. And so we as God's people will do well to know what the Bible says to understand how it fits together. And as we continue to gain biblical literacy and learn how all of scripture is pointing to redemption found in Jesus, then we as the church will continue to grow in what Romans 12 tells us, being transformed by the renewal of our what? Our minds. The renewal of our minds isn't a small thing. It's a, it's a huge thing for the Christian life. So biblical literacy is important. The second reason why Advent, why this is important is because we can admire Christ. We can adore Jesus. Um, The question that I keep asking, why does it matter, is I think of uh, if you're later in your vocation and you're starting to think about retirement and you're watching the economy collapse, why does Advent matter? If you're getting the age where you're actually starting to wonder, is God actually going to provide a spouse for me? Is this, and that's something that regularly is something you think about. Why would Advent matter to you? If you're a mom and you have a handful of children and it's a win if you can brush your teeth once in the day, why, why does Advent and knowing about Advent matter to you? If you're a college student, you've got all these transitions coming up and you don't quite know what's next. Why would Advent matter to you? And I believe one of the main reasons is because, at, so this is if you're a believer for the church, for God's people, uh, in eternity, you will not wonder if you have enough money for retirement. In eternity, you won't be asking the questions of what am I going to do for work and who am I going to be and all this. We are, going to spend a, we are going to spend our time in unhindered, beautiful relationship with Christ, enjoying that relationship. And so we would do well on this side of eternity to begin doing that now and to see Christ. And we can't actually see or enjoy Christ unless we start to understand we can't, see him, we, we can't see him more fully unless we start to understand the people that he came for and what God was doing for thousands of years before Jesus showed up on the scene. Nobody gets excited about the first row of people in the human pyramid. I know this because that is often me. I'm a pretty good nominee for the bottom row. of the. No one gets excited when I like fall to the ground and haven't done anything. People cheer and get pumped when the like 35 pound girl like runs up, probably uses me as a stepping stool to get up to the top of the pyramid because we've gone through all this work to get there. Like there's actually some stakes. There's something on the line for this girl that's like going 15 feet in the air to try to get on top of a pyramid. And the reason for that is because there's a foundation. We understand the work that's been put into it. Too often Christians, we believe God created everything, the fall, Jesus, now we're here. And yet we don't, we're, we're missing that for thousands of years, he's been working 
and, and interacting with humanity to bring about fulfillment in Christ. And we look and we, we will appreciate Christ more the more that we see how God was actually working to fulfill all of those things that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ. There's a foundation that's laid throughout thousands of years of history that we should look at and learn from as God's people. The third one, I'm not going to tell you. We'll get to it later. Um, so how are we going to do this? We're going to do this this morning. I think I'm, I'm not going to read Luke 1 again until the end of the sermon, but I think that Luke 1 gives us specific people that are very significant in the Old Testament. These people are called covenant heads. So a covenant is a promise or an agreement that God makes with humanity. And there's different layers of covenant about conditions and the unconditioned and all that. And we're not going to necessarily get into that. But these covenant heads, some would say there's three covenants, some would say there's five. I'm just going to say these people that Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then the new covenant in Christ. We're not going to go through all of those, but these are key figures where God actually makes a covenant with these people and says, do this and this will happen. And they're all for life and blessings for the people around them. And I think Luke 1, when Gabriel comes and says to, G- to Mary, you're going to have a son, he uniquely knew that Mary would be excited or, and terrified about the people that he brings up. So we're going to look at some of these people and try to understand what's like what's at stake here in Advent. And hopefully that draws us into Christ and helps inform how we are to live. So if you're still at your table of contents, you're going to maybe get your, your, the places will go and we'll have the text on the screen as well. I'd encourage you to flip through the Bibles if you can. We'll be in Genesis, we'll be in Exodus, we'll be in 1 Samuel. But the first place I want us to go is in Genesis 2. And there's three different themes that I'm going to, there are three different things I'm going to use as we're talking about our covenant heads. And they're all things that I don't like, snakes, geography, and politics. So we'll start with snakes, Genesis 2. Who like, who hates snakes? That's biblical. Who likes snakes? Bible's got things to say about, who's got a pet snake? Don't. Okay. Good. That's a problem. Okay, Genesis 2, specifically Genesis 2, verse 15. If you hate snakes, which most of humanity does, it's rooted deeply in biblical truth. So that's, that's basically all we're going to talk about for the next. Okay, Genesis 2, verse 15. So creation, God creates everything, and it is good. And then on the sixth day, he creates man in his image. And Genesis, and that's in Genesis 1, and in Genesis 2, it is like an expanded view of that creation of man. And so this is what we get in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we regularly as Christians, I mean, it's phenomenal news that we are saved by faith alone, by, through faith alone, by grace alone, not by our works. But Adam was different. Adam was created and was to be saved by his works. The covenant made with Adam is one of works righteousness. He's put in the Garden of Eden, and what he's told is if you do this, you obey me, which by the way, before we get psyched about obedience, obedience for Adam was literally enjoy everything I've given you except for this tree. And if you... But if you eat this, you will surely die. So obey me and live. Don't obey me, you will die. That was Adam. That was the covenant made with Adam. And as we know, 
Adam does phenomenally to keep this covenant. You don't even have to flip a page if your Bible has big enough pages. It's Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit. They disobey. They have broken the covenant. So if you wonder why we talk about original sin and being born, that's because Adam, as the covenant keeper for humanity, broke it and humanity would be cursed by being born into sin. Now, what I want to read for you, though, is in Genesis 3, the response to that disobedience. Specifically, there is a promise given to humanity. I'm like being blinded by that blind. Could somebody like close that? That would be awesome. Just so I could like look this direction. I don't want to just talk to them. You got it. Left side. Is that Josiah? What? You got this, bro. There you go. So, anyways, we're back. So, uh, uh, what's promised from the fall is that God promises that from Eve's descendants, there will be one who conquers the serpent that deceives Adam and Eve. But what people often don't realize is that this promise of the gospel actually starts as a curse. It's first bad news. And we see that in Genesis 3, 14. Specifically, we're going to see how God curses the serpent, the snake. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Serpent will bruise the heel of the offspring of woman. Heel injuries, just got to rice it. Rest, ice, compression, elevation. Heel injuries get fixed. But the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, will bruise his head, will kill, will crush the serpent. And what you should see here is that the promise is that from this offspring, Adam and Eve aren't going to die, but there's going to be conflict between the children of Satan and the children of God. And this is a theme, a thread that we're going to pull and see that goes all the way to Revelation, but we're going to stop before Jesus comes, and we're going to see how this conflict between the children of Satan and the children of God continues to pan out. You flip one more page, Genesis 4, Adam and Eve have children. Their names are Cain and Abel. They both offer sacrifices and offerings to God, um, and or offerings, Abel offers a sacrifice. Um, but in their offerings, Cain's is rejected, Abel's is accepted. Cain gets mad, jealous of Abel, kills Abel. And here's what God says to him in Genesis 4, 11. He says, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. Now, here's what's important. That cursed from the ground is the same two Hebrew words that are used to ex- in, the, in the cursing of the serpent. It's the same words, the same curse that's happening. Already, one chapter later, you see conflict between the children of Satan and the children of God. Now, you don't have to flip here. I'll just read a couple more as we continue to look down Old Testament history. In 1 Samuel 11, Saul is fighting um, this man who's in verse 1. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. Nahash, the enemy of the Israelites at this time, is the word for serpent. I'll keep going. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 4, David and Goliath, we know the story of David and Goliath. Let me, exp- let me just describe what Goliath looked like and what he was wearing. 
Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall, and wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. That's the CSB. Your ESV will say male armor. It means the same thing. I don't think it's a coincidence that God was using all of history to bring about these things that are not coincidence for us, that Goliath, the enemy of God's people, would be armed like a giant serpent. And the last one that I'll go to is in Matthew 3, 7, when John the Baptist is confronting the Pharisees, what does he call them? He says, you brood of vipers. And we could go to a handful of other places, but there's this theme that's continuing to be picked up by the Israelites that is not a coincidence by Moses when it's being written in Genesis 2, 3, 4, and not a coincidence in the rest of the Old Testament that the people of God are wondering, when will it end? Will will the enmity between the people of God and the people of Satan end? And when will this offspring come who will actually crush the head of the serpent? When will they come? When will this one come? And I'd stop and take a moment too, just to acknowledge in the room, because with a room this size, it is assured that there are people here that do not have a that have not submitted to Jesus as Lord, that are have not trusted in Jesus for salvation. And I want to remind you that because Jesus came does not mean that the enmity is over, that the conflict is over. It doesn't mean that comes and the end end when it's finally all gone. But for now, I want to just argue that maybe the greatest battle tactic of, the, of Satan right now is for people to not ever think about anything eternal or anything significant having to do with your soul. So maybe you're sitting here and you think, I don't think about eternity that much. Don't care that much. I'm here for whatever reason. I would argue that is exactly what I would want if I was fighting to keep people from coming to the true Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to, this angst of the people of God in the Old Testament saying, where is he? Where's the one who would come? I pray, and I have been praying, that if you are here this morning and do not trust in Jesus, that you would have that same wondering, that same angst of, if I take a minute and actually think about the, the, the things that I feel, I know that I will exist longer than this body, longer than, uh, uh, longer than when I just die. And please use this time to look down the corridors of history and see that God is trying to scream at you through hi- history and say, there is a battle for your soul. Please listen. Where do you look for salvation? Where can I find it? The answer is found in Jesus, and we will get there, but I want to pray that you would see that this is not something that if, you, that if you don't see eternity and you're not worried about it, maybe that's exactly what the, what the enemy would want. Let's stop talking about snakes. Let's move to geography, something far worse than snakes. Any geography fans? Anyone like geography? Thank you. Oh, okay. Good for you. Good for you. Well, I don't. I've never gotten excited looking at a map before, except for these, because these maps are going to be cool, I promise. But when we, so we just got done looking at snakes and specifically the Adamic covenant or the covenant with Adam. Adam broke it, spiraled all of humanity into sin. Now we're going to be looking at the Mosaic covenant, specifically in Exodus chapter 19. So if you flip your way to Exodus chapter 19, we skipped over a couple. We skipped over Noah. We skipped over Abraham. Abraham's given this promise 
that he would be given a descendants. Those descendants would become the Israelites. After Israel is freed from the Exodus, their leader is Moses. On Mount Sinai, God comes to Moses and gives him the Mosaic covenant for the people of Israel. So I'm going to read this, and I want you to hear the agreement that's happening, the covenant with Israel. So I'm in Exodus 19, verse 2. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob. I want you to remember that phrase, the house of Jacob, because this is exactly what Gabriel uses in Luke 1. The house of Jacob, Jacob who will be renamed Israel, and tell to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the covenant, the agreement is you will do, you will follow my voice, follow my commandments and keep my covenant. And then I'm going to use you to reach the nations by being a light. An author that I read that I like this description, the evangelistic strategy of the people of Israel was to be a display case people. Their living, them following God's commandments, keeping his covenant, would make them noticeably different than the rest of the world. And so the plan was, the strategy was to reach the surrounding nations, to reach the world by them being attracted to the life of Israel. So here's our first map. Oh my gosh, I didn't mean to hit that. Um, I'd have no better way to like get to it. So I'm gonna, okay, so if you're like me, you're like, okay, maps are the worst. But this is not the worst because I want what I'm just trying to show you is that God actually fulfills what he says he's going to fulfill in Exodus 19. Um, first thing to note, this is the globe. It's not some fantasy land like World Cups being played like right here. Kind of sweet. Um, but over here, if you follow the Red Sea up, over here is the land of Israel. And what's interesting about the land of Israel, if you notice, it's basically a land bridge between three continents on the planet. So in the, in between Europe, Asia, and Africa, essentially what God does is he takes his people and he plants them in the spot that will be the hub for commerce and travel for anyone heading anywhere else. So if you're heading to a different continent or you're going somewhere for some reason, you're either going through Israel or around Israel or you know of Israel. God plants them there to be a people, a treasured people embedded into the world that attracts the rest of the world to God because of the way that they live. And unfortunately, as we know, Israel does not keep their end of the covenant. They break the covenant. What I, the next picture that I have is a picture from Amos. So in Amos, he's, it's basically a book of judgment. Real exciting read. It actually is. Amos is amazing, but it's just entirely judgment, specifically on the people of Israel. But the first two chapters of Amos are judgment for the nations. And I'm just going to read to you the order that it comes in. And I want you to see, it's not like a random order of countries. It's like, 
it's coming in to Israel and honing in. Like the center of God's judgment after this point is on the people of Israel. So first he starts at Damascus, then go, then judges Gaza, then judges Tyre, then judges Edom, then judges the Ammonites and the Moabites, then Judah, then Israel. He surrounds them and then comes in on Israel. Why is that? Because the Israelites broke the covenant. Instead of being a light to the nations, they were corrupted by the nations. The pagan idolatry and worship of other gods and going doing their own way is what the Israelites chose to do. And so God's judgment instead would actually fall upon them instead of them living and being blessed and enjoying that covenant relationship. They broke it and they were cursed because they could not fulfill the covenant. And so if you're an Israelite, all that you had, you, you have broken the covenant, God's judgment rests upon you, and there's little nuggets of hope that are found in places like Isaiah 49, when God says that he's sending a servant, and he says, you are my servant Israel, with whom I will be glorified. In other words, God says he's going to send someone who will be the true and faithful Israel. But if you are an Israelite, you know that you have broken the covenant, deserve the curse, deserve God's wrath and his judgment, but he's going to send somebody God, you're going to come, you're going to save, you're going to fix this, but when? Let's be done with geography. Last thing that we'll talk about, everyone's favorite, politics. Donald Trump. Joe Biden. Yeah, now you're listening. What's the hot take going to be? I don't have one. That was a social experiment. And my only point Even by saying those two names, some people are listening more intently than they have the rest of the morning. And the reason for that is because we're not all that foreign, we're not that different from the Israelites or all people in human history. And it's that we have a high emphasis on who is our king. We care a lot about who our leader is. With a lot of good reasons, yeah. But we have, we we care a lot about who our king is. And so did the Israelites. The Israelites didn't have a king, and through the cycle of judgment and being restored, they looked around and they said, well, everyone else has a king on earth. We would like a king. Saul didn't work out. David did. And specifically, the final covenant head of the Old Testament is David in the Davidic covenant. And this covenant was that God was promising that not only Will he give the people life, but he's going to give them a ruler that will reign forever. So if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want us to read this together. This is the last covenant head that we'll touch as we're looking at the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 7, it says, verse 11, it says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you, talking to David, a house. David came to him and said, God, I live in a palace, you live in a tent. Let me make you a temple. And God says, no, I'm going to make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, there's that offspring language again, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me, your throne shall be established forever." God makes a covenant with David and says he's going to get from David's descendants 
He's going to give them a kingdom that never ends and never fails. And as we've seen, um, it's a little bit confusing because it ends and it failed. David has a son, Solomon, who was the greatest king that Israel had seen until it wasn't, until he wasn't. And he chased after false gods. And one generation later, the kingdom is split. A few generations later, the northern kingdom is taken into the Assyrian captivity, never to be seen again. A few generations later, the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into the Babylonian captivity. And they are, let, they are given back their land after a period of time, but with no king. And so you look at this covenant promise that was broken because the people of Israel were broken people. And the question is continually asked, where's, where is he? Where's the king? Where's the descendant who's going to come and rule with peace and mercy and justice and reign over all the earth? Where is he? Because he, in our reality, we don't see him. Where is he? And now, we're get, one more thing, I was, we're getting to, we, there's promises in the Old Testament that give us a glimpse of it, that servant. In Isaiah, in Isaiah 9, it tells us, for to us a child is born, and it says of his increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So there really is genuinely someone in this world, when they get more government, there's more peace. All the libertarians are like, no, but it's true that Jesus and his rule and his reign will never end and it will actually bring more peace. And so everybody's wondering, where's the descendant? Where's the one who will end the enmity with a serpent? Where's the one who will fulfill God's covenant promises so that we are not cursed? Where is the one who will come and rule and reign over all the earth, bringing peace and justice and mercy? Where is he? And so now I would like to read to you Luke 1, verses 30 through 33. And I want you to think about what Mary might be experiencing and thinking right now as she hears Gabriel say it. So in verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All of the promises of the Old Testament, all of the covenants of the Old Testament, find their fulfillment after thousands of years of waiting in a baby. And he will come and be the ruler over the house of Jacob. He will come and take up the throne of David. His kingdom will have no end. And here's what's floored me every time I've looked at this text, is what does it say about him? We keep having this language about offsprings the offspring of the woman that will crush the, that'll crush the head of the serpent, the offspring of David. Well, not just the offspring of that line, which Jesus was, but it says he will be the son of the most high. What did God do to fulfill the promises that you and I couldn't, that the Israelites couldn't? He himself came as a human to fulfill the covenant end of humanity that none of us could. He is the perfect promise keeper covenant fulfiller, and he came, God himself came as man so that every one of those promises can be fulfilled in him. There is now one who actually achieved works righteousness. 
If you are a Christian here this morning, you are saved by works. But it's not your own. It's the works of Jesus. He actually was the perfect, faithful Israelite who perfectly obeyed God's laws and his commandments, a perfect light to the nations. And he reigns forever and ever and ever perfectly right now as the king with peace and mercy and justice. This baby boy that would come would be the fulfillment of everything that the people of God had been waiting for. And so I still wonder the question, so what? Um, Biblical literacy and the anticipation of Christ, I hope you see Christ as more beautiful now, but I still wonder, so what? For all of those reasons, why, why does it matter? And I think it's, I think a reason that it matters is because the people of God today will greatly benefit from learning from the people of God of the past about what it means to wait for God to come back for them. Because we are not ultimately just sitting here in limbo. We are waiting for Christ, for his advent the second time, because he promised that he will return. And if we see anything from the advent story, from the picture of the Old Testament, it's that he fulfills his promises. He's going to come back. He's going to do it. And so what I would argue to you is that most of your problems, most of our problems, most of the ways that we um, interact with situations that happen in our lives, the biggest concerns going on in your life, I would argue they're not financial or situational or relational, but I would argue that they're theological and eschatological. If I lost you for a minute, come back, we're back. The eschaton is just the end times. Eschatological means that life is heading to an end. Like we're going... This world is going somewhere. We're not just floating in the timeline. We're actually in the timeline that we know is heading to an end. And when I say that our problems are theological, it means that we live all of our lives as theologians, living out of what we believe to be true about God or what we believe to be true about the world. And when we look at the stories of God fulfilling his covenant promises in Christ, we know that everything he was doing was working out ultimately for his plan, was ultimately working out to glorify Jesus, which means that every situation that you and I experience in our lives, we would probably deal with them very differently if we remembered who God is, that he really does care about us, that he really is in control and in charge of everything, and that he really has an end for where this all is going. We would live differently if we knew that we were a people waiting for him to return and come back. We are a people that are waiting for the advent of Christ. We are waiting for him to come and we know that he will. So that changes how we respond to things in our life. That changes the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that we act, the decisions we make. It changes everything because we know God is faithful to fulfill his promises. He already came once. He sent Jesus. Jesus accomplished everything for our salvation. By believing in him, we can have life and he is coming again. So, so what? Advent teaches us how we expect and wait for Christ to come back. We see him as beautiful because he fulfilled everything on our behalf. He fulfilled everything that we couldn't. We understand the word better because we piece these together and Jesus and his coming teaches us how we can expect him to come again. Now I want to share a story to end a little civil war history, quick pivot, you know. Um, The (laughs) The Union Army, the most feared soldier of the Union Army was William Tecumseh Sherman. Um, and there was a battle that is called the Battle at the Fort of Altoona. Basically, there was a general, his name was John M. Corr. And Corr and his army, this 
at Altoona was this huge base where there was a million and a half rations for the Union soldiers, and it was being sieged by the Confederate army. And what happened, it, I mean, it was just a bloodbath. It was a massacre. And Sherman, the plan was, is he was actually with his troops kind of sweeping around the other end, trying to take the Confederate fort while this battle was happening. And the Union soldiers were being just just slaughtered at Altoona and ready to give up. And in that moment of being ready to give up from Fort Kennesaw, which is probably 20 miles away, they see a flare go up and a message comes from Sherman. And it says, hold the fort, I'm coming. Hold the fort, I'm coming. So if you ever heard hold down the fort, that's the origin of the saying, hold the fort, I'm coming. And there's this roar of cheering from the Union soldiers that are literally retreating back into their fort and they actually hold off until Sherman comes and forces surrender from the Confederate army. And it's this, it's a crazy picture of they act, they knew who Sherman was. They knew that he said, I'm coming, so hold the fort. And so they actually fought differently. They legitimately fought differently and held their ground until he came. Obviously, the connection is clear. We have the message from Christ. I'm coming. I'm coming. He's coming back. How will it change the way that we fight today? How will knowing that he fulfills his promises, that he, he will come back for his people? He will come and make everything right. And right now, while we're in this timeline, we're living in a way where we are actually trying to cry out to people. He's coming back. Come find life in Jesus now. Knowing that he's coming, knowing that he's on his way, that the battle is won, it changes the way that we live. Let's pray.